I think the fact that we are subject to death, right? The fact that we are mortal should do something to us in pushing us to make the most of each day of life that God sees fit to give us. Welcome to the Architecting Through Life podcast, where we dig into principles for building ourselves up as individuals while navigating the realities of this thing called life. The podcast is dedicated to young adults and anyone with a deep hunger to grow in their journey of being all that they were created to be. My name is Simon Gubeni, and with each episode, I'll be discussing thoughts and insights drawn from life, from the Bible, from unique experiences, as well as from other great minds and mentors. Thanks for joining me on this journey, and I do hope that you'll enjoy today's episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Architecting Through Life podcast. Thank you so, so much for tuning in. If it's your first time, welcome. If it's not your first time, thank you so much for finding enough value to check back in again. Um, in today's episode of the podcast, which feels like it's been quite a while since the last episode, <clears throat> I want to talk about what I've entitled living in view of your mortality. Um, living in view of your mortality. It may seem like a bit of a dark or gloomy topic, but I think it may be quite relevant in these times, you know, especially with a global pandemic taking the lives of friends, family, and acquaintances, and all that. And one thing this whole coronavirus, you know, global pandemic has brought about is the fact that um, it's brought to our attention the fact of our mortality, right? Especially if you've ever, if you've ever doubted it. Now, when we talk about mortality, we're talking about the state of being subject to death, basically, right? The fact that you and I naturally are not immortal, right? And the fact that, um, the fact that we are immortal, um, we are vulnerable to death, right? So basically, the idea of mortality is the opposite to being um, immortal, right? Now, in spite of the fact that that is our condition, it's easy to sometimes live like as though that's not the case, right? Especially as young people, it's easy to take for granted the fact that one day this life that we're living is going to end, you know? Um, I was reflecting on this recently after... Um, the passing of a few individuals whose lives really made a significant difference in the lives of others. You know, it brought to the surface the reality of the fact that no matter how full of life you are, you're still mortal, right? You're still subject to death, you know, unfortunately. And for some people, that fact alone, right, the fact of our mortality can be discouraging, right? The thought that if we're all eventually going to die, then what's the point of living, right? If um, even if you're full of life, even if you are making a significant impact in the lives of others and you're even um, you know, making a significant contribution, even if that's the case, you're so full of life, um, even you face the idea of death or mortality, then, then what's the point of living? You know? um, now, <clears throat> I'm obviously no subject matter expert on how to deal with grief or death or you know, the loss of a loved one, um, at least not by any stretch of the imagination. But the reality of death really did... Um, get me thinking, you know, and I want to share at least a few of those um, reflections in this episode. So to do so, I want to briefly think through a text by um, the wise man, King Solomon, right, um, who's primarily known as the author of the book of Proverbs, um, and also known as the wisest king to have lived in his time, right? He also wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, where he reflects on a life lived after basically having had everything that life could offer, right? Now, a whole lot could be said about the book itself and all of what its contents you know, are, but I want to just look at a line from the book, where in the ninth chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes, of, or in the ninth chapter of the tenth verse, rather, um, Solomon writes that whatever you do, do well, for when you go to the grave, there will be no work or planning or knowledge 
or wisdom, right? Whatever you do, do well. For when you go to the grave, there'll be no work or planning or knowledge or wisdom. And there's an idea there that I want to hop on to. And that's that being aware of the fact that you are mortal and that you're going to die one day should influence how we live now, right? And the decisions that we make in the meantime. And that's because after death, you and I won't be able to do things that we wish to do, right? Or wish to have done um, today, right? So the consciousness of the fact that you and I are subject to death should push us to do well now, right? Because we would not have had the opportunity to do so after passing, right? And so the point he's making is that um, this life is the only one you've got and that it will end someday. And in view of that, you and I should do our best to live it as best as we can on this side of life, right? And um, it's a push on how we should consider life in the face of mortality. So while it's easy to be tempted to be pessimistic about life in view of the fact that it ends, Solomon is actually encouraging us to make the most of it because once we enter the grave, we really can't influence or participate in the things that we would have wanted to do while we're still alive, right? He says there's no work or planning or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where we all <coughs> end up. So the idea is that the fact of our mortality should also change our perspective for the better, right? He says whatever you do, do well. And I want to look at seven specific things that I think should be helpful for us um, to always keep in mind, especially in view of the fact of our mortality, right? The fact that you and I are subject to this reality of, you know, of eventual death. In view of that reality, um, how are we to consider or what things should we consider in view of that um, fact, right? Or what things could we consider in view of that fact? You know, by order of, um, by no order of importance, here's seven things that <coughs> I think are important to consider or should consider or have been considering in view of our mortality. The first consideration is, as the text says, to do your best in everything you do, right? Um, in other words, to make the most of everything, right? Every experience, every opportunity, every responsibility, whatever you do, do well, as, as Solomon says, right? In other versions of the text, it actually says, whatever your hand finds to do, do with all your might, because there's no opportunity to do so in the grave, right? There's no um, knowledge, no wisdom or device I'm in the grave where we're going. And so the thing is that things won't last forever, right? You and I won't always get a second chance to do things. And in view of that, why not make the most of whatever it is that you and I have to do? You know, whatever our hands finds to do, whether it's our work, our jobs, the different projects we're all working on, whatever we do, um, the idea is that to do it well. You know, we often live with the delusion, as I said, especially as young people, myself included, that, you know, we've got time, you know, that tomorrow is guaranteed and so on. But not everyone wakes up in the morning knowing that, you know what, today's my last day. Right? And so the encouragement is to do the best that we can with today. You know, some might say, what's the point of doing your best if you're going to die anyway? You know, and I think the answer to that is actually twofold. You know, the first being that um, your present actions make life easier or harder for yourself in the future. Right. Um, and the second point being that your present actions make life easier or harder for those around you. You know, especially those we love. I mean, this is true even long after you and, I, you and I might have left, you know. So maybe to expound upon those two, the first of making life easier for yourself. I was having lunch with a colleague of mine um, who's in his 40s now and he was telling me about a recent decision he made to become vegetarian, you know, to live healthier in terms of walking and exercise and so on. And I shared a bit with him a bit about, you know, my diet as well as the little things that I do, you know, to exercise and keep in shape and so on. And he made a point that stuck with me. You know, he was like, I so wish I did what I'm doing now while I was your age, you know, while he was in his 20s. And what he was saying was that because I pretty much didn't take my health seriously in my 40s, 
there are things that I'm experiencing now which I could have otherwise prevented, you know. Um, life could have been easier for him in some areas because of the actions and the decisions that he could have taken at a younger age, you know. Um, now, it's true that um, he's mortal, you know, and that one day he may no longer live. But before then, the decisions he's taken or hasn't taken um, can make life easier or harder, right? And the point is doing your best in whatever you do now is, the, is in the best interest of your future self, right? Who may still obviously have some years to live before passing away, right? Um, and we'd obviously want to make life easier for him um, or her, right? And with regards to doing your best um, for um, it being in the interest of other people, you know, those whom you love, to put it simply, you know, sometimes our loved ones will have to deal with the consequences of our actions even after we're gone, you know. And doing our best affects what the things are that they would have to deal with even after our lives have ended, you know. So um, to the question of about um, why doing our best matters if we're eventually going to die, it's because your future self may have a few more years to live before then, right. And your loved ones also be affected by our actions and so the best way to make life easier for those people right um that being your future self as well as your present and future loved ones is obviously then nothing less than than doing your best in in every area of your life and that's why the wise man says in the text we read that whatever you do do well for when you go to the grave there'll be no work or planning or knowledge or wisdom in other words when you and i go to the grave there's no coming back to undo what we could have done what we didn't do while we were alive you know the second consideration is to live beyond your regrets right to live beyond our regrets you know at times as people myself included we don't allow ourselves the permission of living life to the fullest because of feeling like our past mistakes disqualify us from the right to do so you know um, and that's the power that regret has on the life you know where you have a commitment to the guilt of your past mistakes or of your missteps and as a result of that, you think it's unacceptable for you to live your best life in the present, you know, whether it's that you failed at school or you started something that you didn't finish, a major loss, a broken relationship or a big sin that you might have committed, you know, it can be anything. The regret of the past seems to make many people not live life fully in the present. Now, the problem is you are mortal, right? You know, we are mortal. And the question of um, how long will you let regret hold you back from living before you die you know there's there's a great book i once read <coughs> where the author was talking about guilt you know and guilt is synonymous with regret by the way and he makes the distinction between what he calls legitimate guilt and illegitimate guilt and that um there is a guilt or regret that is illegitimate right and then he goes on to list the number of differences between the two and one of the ways in which he describes legitimate guilt is where he says that Illegitimate guilt is guilt which has stayed beyond the point of confession and repentance, right? So illegitimate guilt is guilt which has stayed beyond the point of confession and repentance. And the point he's making is that once you've acknowledged what you've done wrong, right, that's confession, and once you've done what you can do or what's in your power to make right what you've done wrong, um, that's repentance, there's a point at which you have to let it go, right? Because at that point... Um, the point beyond confession and repentance, that guilt beyond that point is illegitimate, right? Now, it may not always be the case that the feeling of guilt or the feeling of regret will go away immediately, but the point is that that regret shouldn't be given the permission to hold you back from living our lives to the fullest, especially because of the fact that we're mortal, right? We've got, we've got life to live, right? And one day we won't have life anymore. And so we want to not let regret and guilt hold us back from living our lives fully 
in the present, you know, and maybe one day we'll do another episode about um, facing guilt, right? But the second consideration is to live beyond our regrets. The third consideration is to make the most of our relationships. Um, you know, one of the best things about living life in this modern digital age is how easy it's allowed us to connect with people whom we otherwise would have never been able to, you know. Um, with social media, I'm able to connect with friends in Zambia, in Kenya, in the US, and so on, you know. Um, but the major downside of all of that is how easy it's made it for us to also disconnect and detach with people, you know, um, almost at a click of a button, you know. Um, now, sometimes that's necessary, um, but I think it's a problem in how it affects our day-to-day -day relationships in real life, you know. Um, part of why I imagine relationships would obviously be forced to work in the older days would be because of the fact that especially before the internet um, or why they had a stronger sense of community is because of the fact that you lived in the same geographical location with your community right or with those whom you have a network of relationships with and so even if you were mad at your neighbors you know you would still be forced to see each other often you know and sometimes for the sake of survival you'd even be forced to cooperate with each other you know um, but now communities and networks aren't only limited to to physical geography you know and um, i think it's safe to say that the ease of detachment um, in our digital interactions has also affected our, you know, our you know, immediate relations, you know, most especially in creating the idea of how easy it is to cut people off. You know? um, I sometimes wonder if you know, people had a, a culture of cutting off um, people in, 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 you know, in olden day village communities, you know, um, where they, I can just picture it when someone's like, I don't like Mkiza, you know, he talks too much, I'm going to cut him off and not interact with him on the farm or by the river or whatever, you know, I don't know. But the point is that amongst other things, how easy it is to block someone, um, someone you don't like on social media, or how easy it is to ghost someone or be ghosted by someone, is developed a culture of easily cutting off um, an easy detachment, right? Rather than going through the laborious work of actually managing relationships, right? And working to resolve conflicts face-to-face -face and so on, right? And I'm talking about all relationships, um, not just romantic ones or, 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 you know, of those sorts. It's easier to not put in the work that comes with being in relationships, right? Because of how easy it is to detach. But here's the thing, though. You and I are mortal, right? We're going to die eventually, right? You know, you know how painful it is to hear stories of regret from someone whose loved ones passed away while they were still on bad terms with them. I remember I met a lady once back while, you know, doing Bible studies on a mission trip, and her mother had died while they were apparently angry at each other. And the mother had passed away for years, you know, before our interaction. But because they had unresolved grievances with each other, the lady lived with this constant regret of where they were in their relationship when the mother passed. And because of her belief, you know, that her mother's spirit was somewhere looking down on her and still angry and whatnot, the lady had no peace, right? Um, now, she did, you know, do a whole lot better after we had, you know, Bible studies with her and so on. But the point is, you make the most of your relationships now, you know, especially in view of your mortality, in view of the fact that one day you're going to die, right? And there won't be a chance to mend what could have been broken relationships, you know. Um, so to let the loved ones, you know, you, the, those who you love know that you love them, you know, forgive who you need to forgive, you know. Um, and also, you know, even though this one is hard, you know, to forgive yourself where you may have been wrong in relationships, you know. You may want to address any grudges or grievances that are holding you back from living, you know, to give and to accept love while it can be accepted, you know, and appreciate, you know, to check up on friends, even when it's, you know, sometimes feel as though it would be awkward to do so, you know. Um, I'd even say to shoot your shots at your crush if you have to, you know. Um, you might experience chest pains if you, they turn you down, but, you know, you only live once, right? 
um, and you'll be happy if that shot lands. Now, there's a quote that says, um, if you appreciate somebody, you should go ahead and tell them because some people don't get the roses while they, while they can still smell them, you know. Um, and that's the idea of making the most of relationships while we still have life to live. You know, I read somewhere this week where someone is saying that if we think photos and videos aren't important, wait until that's all you have of a person, you know. And so the idea is that in view of our mortality, we should make the most of our relationships now, you know, while we still have them. The fourth consideration in view of our mortality is to pursue and go after the things that you really want, you know. Um, obviously, granted that they aren't harmful um, either to you or to others, and granted that they're not illegal or immoral, you know, um, why not go after the things that you really want? You know, the fact that um, you really want them should be an indication to you of the fact that they're, they're calling out to you, right? Um, you know, the reality of the fact that we are mortal should be an invitation to us to make the most of the experiences and opportunities that life has afforded us, um, especially the things that we really, really um, want. You know, if you go back to <clears throat> the text that I read in the beginning from Ecclesiastes, um, if you read the other text from the chapter, um, it echoes the same sentiment, you know, in um, Ecclesiastes 9 verse 5, where the author writes there that um, the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. Right? It says they have no further reward nor are they remembered. Whatever they did in their lifetime, you know, their loving, their hating, their envying, is all long gone, and they no longer have a part in anything here on earth. Then he goes on to say in, in the seventh to the ninth verse, he says this, so go ahead, right, in view of the fact that you don't have a part in, you know, this earth's affairs after you've passed away. He says in view of that, he says, so go ahead, Eat your food with joy, you know, drink your wine with a happy heart, for God approves of this. Wear fine clothes, you know, with a splash of cologne. And then lastly, he says in the text, he says, live happily with the woman you love through all of the meaningless days of your life that God has given you under the sun, right? Um, the idea there is that there are things that will only ever be experienced in this life. And as far as they are not wrong, and as far as they are not unwise or harmful, you're free to pursue them, right? And this can be goals um, and even experiences, you know. Um, more than only accumulating things, you know. Um, on a personal level, you know, there's a resolution that I made to myself at the end of last year, um, at the end of 2020, which was to invest in experiences, you know, big or small, alone and with others. And that's seen me, you know, travel and experience a few things which I hadn't really given myself the permission to experience, you know, for, for whatever reasons. And that's inspired by the fact that there's no work or planning or device or experience in the grave, right? And to live in view of our mortality and making the most of life that God has given me, you know? And so the fourth consideration is to pursue the things and experiences that you truly and deeply want, you know? The fifth consideration is to face our fears. Um, face your fears. You know, one of the greatest things that seem to hold us back from living is our fears, you know? And crazy enough, even the fear of death causes us to hold ourselves back from living you know um each of us have things obviously that we're afraid of and and i even say that that's that's natural and normal um but sometimes the things that we're afraid of are actually holding us back from living life to the fullest you know um and these fears vary you know um, whether it's the fear of failure or the fear of looking foolish or the fear of what will people say um and any host of other fears you know but sometimes our fears hold us back from living life to the fullest you know um there's a quote i love that really blew my mind when i first when I first heard it a while back, and it says, God has placed the best things in life on the other side of fear. You know, God has placed the best things in life on the other side of fear. You know, um, and one of the best ways I'm learning to actually deal with fear is 
to voluntarily face the fear head on, you know. Um, and that starts by actually doing an audit of our fears and actually breaking them down and interrogate them to actually get to the bottom of them, you know. Um, I did this at a point in my life where I had to ask myself, why am I afraid of this or that thing? You know, it can be anything. So if we were to use, for example, um, I don't know, the fear of failure, for an example, you know, um, actually breaking it down and interrogating it with some questions so as to get to the bottom of it, you know, like, um, why are you afraid of failing? You know, is it maybe because I look stupid or maybe because people will laugh at you or whatever, right? And then going even deeper beyond that, you know, like, what are the things that I'm actually afraid of failing at? And why am I afraid of failing at those things rather than, than other things, you know? Um, and even, let's say I do fail, and, and then what, you know? And then what? And, and asking, you know, those kind of questions and so on. And what you'll realize is that there's actually something much deeper to the fear than the surface of the fear itself, you know? And if you go to the bottom of it, you realize that there are some things which you can actually do, you know, even if it's bit by bit, to face and manage the fear, right? So going back to the fear of failure, for example, you may find that the fear of failure um, comes from the fact that, you know, once you break it down, stems from, you know, possibly having a strict teacher or a strict parent growing up. And every time you failed or made a mistake, they responded to you in a way that made you feel like you weren't loved, right? So you resorted to try your best to never fail because you won't, you, you don't want to feel unloved, right? And the fear of failure, when you break it down and dig into it, is actually a deep-seated misconception where you believe that the more you don't fail is the more you're worthy of love, you know? And it's just one example of how getting to the root of our fears can actually scratch the surface of what's, what's the deeper underlying things and actually then work to address it, right? But the point is we can and actually should try to face the fears that hold us back from living our present life to the fullest, you know. Um, now, fear in and of itself obviously isn't a bad thing because, you know, sometimes it can protect you, but it's the control that it has on our life, you know, and the control that it has on our decisions that can actually become unhealthy, you know. And what's crazy is that, you know, sometimes as people, we can even tend to fear the things that are actually good, you know, um, whether it's the fear of love, you know, what's called philophobia, or the fear of success, um, or even the fear of being happy, you know, what's called cherophobia. Um, we actually even sometimes fear the good things that we want um, and that holds us back from living life to the fullest. And so in summary, point number five or point number five of our considerations of living in view of the mo our mortality is the fact that our fears hold us back from living. But the point is that eventually we're going to pass from this earth. And so why not um, face our fears, you know? The sixth consideration is working on being the best version of yourself that you can be. You know, this is something that's become so important for me, you know. Um, and this may be related to the first point about doing your best. Um, but there's a thought that comes from um, Covey's book, The Seven Habits, um, where he talks about habit one, the, the habit of personal responsibility. And he discusses the idea that um, you are the first person who's responsible over your life, right? And that you can be proactive in how you live it and the direction that you want it to take. And so in this, he talks about living from what he calls our core values, right? Living from a deep sense of purpose in life and that this must be discovered by ourselves, right? And then he goes on to give a powerful way of thinking about how to outline our own core values. And um, the idea that when he outlines it um, is to picture your funeral at the end of life, right? And you picture it as being attended by the most important people and relationships in your life. So that's your family, your colleagues, your people from your community, from your church, from your friends, you know, um, and so on, you know, um, or your work or whatever. And then the question becomes, 
what do you want it to be said about you at your funeral by these major people in your life, right? By these major roles in your life. You know, what do you want your closest associates and all these important relationships to say about you at your funeral at the end of life? You know, when you picture the scene and you imagine it, what do you want your wife or your children to say about you? you know, what do you want your colleagues or your parents, um, your siblings, what do you want them to say about you? you know, what do you want your neighbors to say about you? Um, your clients, your customers, what do you want all these relationships to say about you, you know, when they when they testify about the experience with you. And as you spend time to think about it, whatever that answer is, to live each day as an opportunity to make that a reality, right? That that becomes your core values, right? So if you want it to be said that you are loving and that you are always supportive and that you are always excellent in your work, whatever the answer may be, to go about making that a reality each and every day of your life, right? And being um beyond that, it's about I guess being your best self, right? And realizing that um, on this side of the grave, there's always room for growth. And the fact that the pursuit of that is where we actually find fulfillment, right? The pursuit of seeing that I'm better than I was last year or I'm better than I was five years ago, you know, that pursuit of growth is actually where we find fulfillment, you know? Um, whether it's, you know, um, being a better person in your character, whether it's being in health, in relationships, in your career, in your learning and so on, you know? Um, the idea of our growth and pursuing being the best person we can be is where we find fulfillment while we still have, you know, life and mortality. And so if it's true that one day you and I will no longer be alive, then why not make the most, the, the most of each day in being the best version of ourselves? The seventh consideration, which for me is, you know, obviously most important, is to commit your life to God. You know, you know at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, after... Solomon goes through a whole round of considerations about the meaninglessness of some of some things that we consider important. Solomon ends off the book with with what he calls a brief, with what I would call a brief note. Right? He says there, um, "Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man." Right? Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. This is our ultimate responsibility. Right? Um, in another in another place, he says there that. Um, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, right? And the idea behind that is that you make wise decisions when you live with the reckoning of the fact that there is a God and that he is great enough to deserve reverence and respect, you know, um, to deserve, you know, honor and respect. And more than that, you know, um, I think myself and many others can testify to the meaning that life finds when it's lived in view of the reality of God, you know. Um, it gives a perspective and a context to the major questions that I think we all face in life, you know, about, you know, where do we come from? You know, why do we exist? How do we know what's right and wrong? And, you know, ultimately when the show is all over, you know, what is our destiny when life ends, you know? Um, so keeping this in mind, the fact of our mortality can be looked at with a little less dread, you know, um, because of knowing that it's not the ultimate end, you know, it's not the end of everything. And there's more to the story beyond death, especially with the hope of um, the promise of giving our lives um, to God. You know, um, it's often that we use the term "rest in peace" when people f pass away. You know, um, but the phrase is actually drawn from 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 a biblical text. You know, if you read um, the book of Isaiah 52, um, it should be verse seven. Um, in its complete form, the verse actually says, "Those who follow godly paths will rest in peace when they die." You know. Um, that may be verse 2, if I'm not mistaken. If Isaiah 57, verse 7, if not verse 2. It says that those who follow godly paths will rest in peace when they die. You know, when you follow a godly path, you know, when you give your life to God, you can rest in peace. You know, and the idea is that 
death doesn't have to be a terror because of the promise of resurrection and um, eternal life, right? So, so for the believer, the best is yet to come, right? Um, yes, we'll obviously still be sad and devastated at the loss of our loved ones. Um, we'll obviously still be shattered at the loss of, you know, our, our loved ones in death and all of that. Um, you know, the end of life will always bring a heartbreak, which is unimaginable. But we die with the hope of having um, seen death in the context of a much bigger picture, right? Um, and so the point of all this, um, you know, the point of living in view of our mortality is to live, you know, um, to actually live and to live in view of our mortality, to live in view of the fact that this life thing will end someday, you know. Um, and you and I only have one life to live. And if that's the case, then why not make the most of it, you know. Um, with the seven considerations, you know, the first of doing your best in everything, you know, um, living above regrets, the third of making the most of our relationships, you know, pursuing the things that really matter, um, facing our fears, working on being the best version of ourselves, and ultimately giving our lives to God. Before I close this off, I maybe just want to read a quote uh, from a brother of mine that actually touched me recently when I read it. Um, shout out to Thompson. Uh, the quote actually goes as follows. It says, um, and I quote, I hope you see the brevity of life. I hope the brevity of life spurs you on to live each day with deliberate action, that each one in its own way will one day be worth a mention, that you don't waste the fleeting moments on a life you'll regret, that you live fully with every borrowed breath you get, even and especially in the ghastly face of death I hope you live. That's it for today's episode. My name is Simon and I'm wishing you all the best on your journey of architecting through life. Much love. Thank you for listening to the episode that you've just heard on the Architecting Through Life podcast. If you found it valuable, please kindly do me the favor of um, sharing it and maybe leaving a comment if you'd like. Um, I really like to get your thoughts, any impact that you might feel it may have. And do feel free to share it with someone else so that it can be a benefit to them as well. Thank you so much for your time and do join us again on the next episode of the Architecting Through Life podcast.